Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name's Ryan. My name's Brad. And this episode, we're discussing SST215, the Grant Hart Intolerance LP. It's our first solo Husker. Grant's going to be our only solo Husker. So it's cool to get into, you know, post-Husker breakup a bit with a Grant Hart record. So really looking forward to that. I don't know, like, I know Husker very deeply. I know Grant Hart and Nova Mob stuff kind of, I'm kind of medium familiarity, nowhere near like a Bob Mould familiarity. So it's interesting for me to get deep into Grant Hart stuff. Yeah, same here. Awesome. Well, before we do that, why don't you hit us with some spiels? Okay. So Ryan, Craig Abara had this post recently uh, about Jimmy Smack. Uh-huh. And how in 2014, I'll just recap the, the story he told, a Canadian label called Death Vault Records got in touch with him looking for Jimmy Smack, who is a Pedro musician Craig has a chapter on in his A Wailing of a Town book. Mm-hmm. Now, this Canadian guy ended up releasing Jimmy's two seven-inch singles from 1982 on that label. And then a few years later, Craig was actually planning to release Jimmy's entire recorded output on his label, Water Under the Bridge. But Death Vault dude had the master tapes, and it turned into this big protracted debacle. And in the meantime, Craig gets hit up by a guy named Mark from Amsterdam, who has a label called Nickel Hughes. Uh, probably pronouncing that wrong, about getting a hold of Jimmy. This was around 2001. So Craig had decided by this point to uh, master Jimmy's stuff directly off of vinyl because he can't get the master tapes. And then he's kind of just chipping away at that. And then this Mark from Amsterdam just recently hits Craig up to ask for his address so he can send him this release that he's put out <laughs> yeah. in cooperation with, with Jimmy Smack. Did you see all of this? I saw it, yeah. yeah. And I, I remember that uh promo little insert in some water under the bridge stuff saying hey jimmy smack because it was around around the same time where they were putting out some promo around a potential saccharine trust cassette too right yeah yeah so this this new release is a nine song comp called death is certain and here's from the bio across two seven inches death or glory 1982 and death rocks 1983 and a 12 inch Anguish, 1982, Jimmy Smack carved his own bleak chasm amidst the L.A. death rock scene that he inhabited. After decades dormant in the crypt, Nickelhouse finally compiles Smack's full recorded output. While his local punk contemporaries pursued aggressive hardcore and political punk, Jimmy donned corpse paint and found a home performing in venues like the Anti-Club, amongst other subterranean dwellers Christian death Dead Hippie, and 45 Grave. Mm-hmm. His recordings consisted of voice, rhythm box, and electrified bagpipe. <laughs> uh, they veer close to other worldly avant-garde rituals. So there's a chapter, as I mentioned, in in Craig's book. And uh, here's Jimmy himself in the book. He goes, I was a rock poet. I used to play the bagpipes for fun because of my Scottish heritage. One day I was in Santa Monica and I found a set of, it was called the Caltronic Bagpipe Mach 3. It was an electronic bagpipe. So I bought speakers and all these effects and man, I could make some big noise. My motto was, 
I don't need no guitar. I don't need no drums. Electronic modulations. Here it comes. <laughs> I just plug my act into the wall. I got machines to do it all. So, <laughs> you know, Linda Bukowski, Charles Bukowski's widow, tells a pretty wild story in this book about this uh, theatrical show he put on. She's on stage wearing military fatigues and holding an actual M1 military, military rifle and there's strobe lights going off. I think he either owned or ran the Star Theater and had a business during the day teaching jazzercise to, to older housewives. It's, it's pretty, pretty interesting stuff in the book. Rob Holtzman talks here about, he goes, Jack Brewer on the back of Pagan Icons wrote, in dedication to Jimmy Mack's eternal and holy chameleon dance of life. So there's a, there's a Saccharine Trust tie-in. And here, again in the book, is Bruce Duff quoted in 1993 from BAM magazine. A beautiful blend of poetry, music, dance, and theater, all done on a low scale. Imagine a skeleton in a kilt and, and beret playing a burning flute or electric bagpipes while a ghoulish belly dancer circles in front of him and slides appear behind him. A little beatnikish, but on target and intelligent. Mm. So... Pretty interesting. Just one of those older guys from the scene that found a spot, I guess, you know, in the punk scene. Yeah. Uh, the record itself is just sheer insanity in the best way. <laughs> <laughs> these kind of suicide-esque drones with a primitive drum machine and the, these repeating bagpipe loops and Jimmy kind of chanting over top, doing a like a, almost a beat poet kind of thing. But the lyrics are super dark and he just... Kind of, he almost had this Wolfman Jack, Captain Beefheart thing going on. Mm. It's pretty wild stuff. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I have not heard it, but I did see that post on it. Yep. And Check I remember, I, I'm, yeah, I know, I, I, I will. I remember reading about it in A Wailing of a Town, though, going like, what is that, you know? Yeah, well, you can hear it on that label's band camp, so. I bet you there's some mention of him in the Phantoms book, and I, I haven't noticed it yet. You know what? I guarantee you there is. Yeah, right? Yeah. That's all I have for this week, Ryan. What do you have? That's all you have? Yeah. All right. Well, <clears throat> on this week's episode, I have one spiel brand, and it's about SST Records. Okay. But first, I need you to take me to... <sighs> We're still doing this, hey? Do it. The Comp Zone. No, come on. The Comp Zone. <laughs> That's better. That's better. All right. Two weeks ago, we covered a comp on the show, the Program Annihilator 2 comp. And on one of our threads, the social media stuff, someone asked for a list of all the three-inch SST promo CDs that were sent to record stores in the early 90s. Remember that one? I remember. Remember? Okay. You and me were remembering about it over text, actually. Exactly. You told me, I have such list. Well, I think I do. Yeah. And there is a bit to unpack from that request. So I thought what I would do is unpack all that, if it's okay with you, while we're in the comp zone. But in order to do that, I have to start way back in the 1980s. Ready? Ready. Okay. First, I'm going back to the 80s and I'm going back to cassette brand. Hear that? Yeah, I hear it. Okay. Because if you want to talk about three-inch promo SST CDs, you actually have to start with this, the 1986 SST 
retail sampler number one. This is a, a white shell cassette, no inlay. Do you call inlays J cards? I do, yeah. I think so, hey? J yeah. cards, because they're shaped like a J, right? Yeah. Yeah. This does not have a J card. When I got it, whenever I got it, it came actually with a handwritten insert in pencil. So I still have whoever owned this before me. I've got your handwritten uh, J card in pencil. It ranges in terms of tracks from SST 50, the minute flag record, to SST 93, the SWA album of the same name. And it also has uh, tracks from records like Raging Full On, Looser Than Clams. But So that's retail sampler number one. Then we go to 1987. What does that have to do with mini CDs? Dude, be patient. <laughs> be patient. Okay. SST Godhead Store Dude in-store play device number two on cassette, 1987. Cassette, now we've got a white inlay and clear cassette shell. This one ranges from SST 76, Paper Bag, Ticket to Trauma, to SST 118, the Henry Kaiser, Devil in the Drain LP. So now we've got, you know, more promo swag for folks, okay? Do you think a, a record store was ever playing the in-store dude Godhead tape and, like, Devil in the Drain came on and someone in the store was like, what is this? Do you have this? Do you think that happened? <laughs> Why not? Why not, right? But hang on. So uh, the songs off of Devil in the Drain would have been uh, Sugagaki for Conlon and Lost Horizon, if you remember those tracks. Well, I am I remember that first title you mentioned because I'm pretty sure that was our ballot result pick, yeah. if I recall. Well, well, there you go, man. Someone may have heard it and said, hey, do you have that? Maybe. Okay, still in 1987, SST Godhead Store Dude in-store play device... Number three, here we've got a red inlay, and it's subtitled for the North Americas, hmm. okay? This one ranges from SST-89, Slovenly Repost, to SST-136, the Glenn Phillips Elevator LP. This has got a fold-out J-card, and it says on it, contact the distributors for all SST releases and it's got all these record stores from back in the day it even has two Canadian ones Record Peddler and Zulu nice yeah exactly still in 1987 SST Godhead Store Dude in-store play device number four this one is blue this one though has international distributors on it it has, uh, this time, instead, I'm just going to mention the Canadian ones. So in Canada, this time, it's got Groovy Times from BC and then Record Peddler again. This one ranges from Firehose Ifin, SST-115, where it says Available Worldwide, mm -hmm. to SST-172, the Fred Frith Technology of Tears, where it says Available in North America and Australasia. <laughs> so you know what that means, right? Technology of Tears was not available worldwide. Well, I'm pretty sure it came out on something else in Europe, right? You mm -hmm. know what I mean? Like you're in on, I can't remember what, New Rose or Rough Trade or one of those labels that they... Yeah, yeah, yeah that's yeah. what it means. Yeah. You got it. Okay, no fooling you. SST Godhead Store Dude, in-store play device number five. Now we're in 1988. This is a double-sided fold-out inlay in purple from... SST-105, Screaming Trees, The Other Worlds, 
to SST 192, run westy run, hardly not even. So that's the range here, and they're really, really up in the uh, the promo merch on this one, I would say. Now, though, we're done with cassettes, and we get to our first three-inch CD. We're still in 1988, though. SST Godhead Store Dude Dudes. In-store play device number six. This has way less tracks, and mine is totally thrashed, as all of these three-inch CDs are. Uh, this one ranges from SST-197 Trotsky Ice Pick Baby to 223, the Kirk Kelly Go Man Go. Okay. So, like, how many songs would that have on it? It has six tracks on it. That's it. And, it, and that's the thing. These CDs, once SST went from cassettes to CDs for these in-store uh, play devices, they basically cut the number of tracks in half, notwithstanding that, you know, a CD can hold way, way more. But this one has uh, six tracks, Roger Manning, Trotsky, Kirk Kelly, uh, Volcano Suns, Dino, Freak Scene at that point, Soundgarden, Flower. Interesting selection there. Still on the three-inch CDs now into 1989, SST Godhead Store Dude Dudes. In-store play device number seven. Six tracks again, ranging from SST 199, the Run Westy Run self-titled release to SST-235, the Firehose from Ohio record. Now, we are uh, going to SST Godhead Store Dude Dudes in-store play device number eight, and we're still in 89, and check out this one, Brent. This one you're going to love, man. I've got a three-inch CD adapter attached to it, okay? <laughs> wow, so this, isn't that slick? That's so slick. Uh, this one ranges from SST-225, Blast, Take the Manic Ride, to uh, 248, The Screaming Trees, Buzz Factory. Hmm. Okay? And that's it for three-inch CDs. They only occurred, as far as I can tell, in 88 and 89, and there's only three of them. Because now we go to SST Godhead Store Dude Dudes in-store play device number nine, which is a full-size CD. Full-size CD, still only six songs on it, though. And it ranges from 156, the DC-3 Vita, to 252, Negative Land, Helter Stupid. And then the last, I believe, SST Godhead Store Dude Dudes in-store play device number 10, from 1989 still. This is the last one, as far as I can tell. It ranges from SST-149, the Saccharin Trust, Past Lives, to uh, 250. Three, Meat Puppets, Monsters. None of these CDs came with inlays or anything as far as I can tell. And they don't, at this point, you know, distinguish between North America, worldwide. They don't list distributors or anything. So there's 10. And then there's nothing for about 19 to 20 years. Yeah. Because then you get to this one. The SST Record Sampler from 2008. That one came out... Um, once SST has now moved to Taylor, Texas. So it's got bands like Jam Bang, Greg Ginn and the Taylor, Texas Corrugators, Gone, and also Brandt, our namesake, Mojack. Nice. Yeah, and um, it has artwork by Dory Ginn on it, photography by Rob Kinney, graphic design by Cliff Samuels, Interested to see if we run into more of those folks once we get about 100 episodes further on. Well, we've seen Cliff, Cliff Samuels before. 
He, oh, and what? Remind me. He's the guy that drives Lamborghinis and has license plates that say g g g gone Right. Right, right. Oh my gosh. Yeah. But this this sampler, like I've actually never seen any of the first ten in the wild. I've I had to kind of just find them over the years. Um, but this SST record sampler 2008, I've come across a fair amount of these. Oh, the I think they time. pretty much gave those away in like a case of beer or something. Yeah, like they were they were everywhere for a period of time, right? Yeah. So, anyways, in answer to the question, does anyone have a list of the three inch promo CDs from the 1990s? I think it's just those three from 88 and 89. I think. Right on. Cool list, man. Yeah. Well, that's it. I'm glad you were able to tolerate me for that. <laughs> History lesson, part one. All right. So really cool to get into our first solo Grant Hart record. As I said, you know, I probably don't know Grant Hart solo material or the Nova Ma material as much as Husker and any of the Bob stuff. So really cool to get into it. Um, and we do know the story of Husker Du. We've been through a number of their releases on the show, as as our listeners know. We also know about, you know, how Bob and Grant met at Cheapo Records, how they broke up in late 87. We'll get into a bit more of that. Go back and listen to our episodes as well. There's some great stuff and great interviews as well. You can also, when getting into uh, some Grant Hart solo stuff, you can look up uh, Michael Azarad's book, Our Band Could Be Your Life, and the Husker Du chapter. Of course, the Andrew Earls book, Husker Du, the story of the noise pop pioneers who launched modern rock. Always a good read there. And there are also lots of other sources out there. For me, though, for this episode, probably the best source was this DVD, the Every Everything DVD about Grant Hart. It's called The Music and Times of Grant Hart. It's uh, it's really great, an intimate uh, story and uh, told almost entirely by Grant himself. Great interviews, great footage in this documentary, and some great nuggets about this Intolerance record, which we'll get to in a bit. Interesting, though, in the documentary, Brent, he's talking about the end of Husker Du and when they broke up. He, he says they were lucky to get out with their lives. Hmm. At one point, he says that. He makes it sound as though it was quite the relief to have Husker Du break up after they had been on a major and there were all these fissures in the band starting. He describes it as like the opening of a curtain when Husker Du broke up, kind of uh, a relief, kind of freeing him. Another quote he makes in the documentary is, it was like stepping out of a burning airplane and knowing the chute was going to open. Yeah. Interesting. Okay, well, the main site... source of information for me was Paul Hilkoff's excellent Husker Du database, thirdav.com or thirdav.com. So he's got a listing on there of every show by Husker Du and by all three members as well, like with their various solo projects. Husker Du played their last show on December 11th, 1987, I believe. They had at least two more shows booked that following week, but either canceled or or didn't show. Um, Now, speaking of Husker Du, we've seen them you know, we've seen them since Flip Your Wig a few times, but their last full length for SST was 055, 1985's Flip Your Wig, which just seems like a lifetime ago Yeah, for on the show anyways. Uh, then, of course, they moved to Warner's uh, for Candy Apple Grey, 1986. 
and Warehouse Songs and Stories, 1987. I listened to both of those this week. Warehouse is probably my least listened to record, I would say. That's a good double. Yeah, Candy Apple Grey is actually one of my most listened to. Oh, interesting. I like that. And and I was listening to it, you know, in somewhere in all the stuff I was reading this week, Grant describes Candy Apple Grey as a Grant album and Warehouse is a Bob record. He describes in the documentary about how when Candy Apple came out and the sing the singles were like Grant singles. Yeah. That's where a lot of the resentment really started to form as he describes it. Yeah. But both really good records. I especially love Candy Apple Grey. Mm. I'd say it's underrated for sure. Yeah. I don't know. They're both pretty highly rated by me. Yeah. So yeah. I don't know. So uh, Bob talks in his book, See a Little Light, about he and Grant were towards the last year of the band in a pattern of what he calls passive-aggressive, non-communicative behavior, while Greg stayed neutral. David Savoy, their longtime manager, died by suicide right before the start of the Warehouse Tour in 1987, which was, you know, their most ambitious and lengthy tour at that point as a band. Bob says his death quote, amplified everything that was already happening and that Grant's behavior had changed for the worse once he started hanging out with the Westies. That's what Bob actually says in his book. Mm-hmm. Uh, he says they were working on their follow-up to Warehouse. They'd rehearse for half an hour and Grant would kind of get all fidgety and say, I have to go do something, I'll be right back. Bob kind of says he'd leave anxious and return 30 minutes later in a state of bliss. And he says, Bob, that he had no idea Grant was using heroin at this time. Uh, But this all came to a head on the road in December of 1987 when they played what Bob describes as a a bad show. And Bob was informed at that time that Grant was a a heroin addict. On January 26th, 1988, there's a band meeting at Grant's parents' house in South St. Paul. Grant's parents are there. And it doesn't go well. Uh, Bob quit the band following the meeting, and that was the last time the three members were in the same room again. And Bob uh, retreats back to this farmhouse he had moved to in Pine City, Minnesota, to start working on material that would end up on his solo debut workbook. Mm -hmm. Now, here's an interview with Bob from BAM Magazine, June 1989, by Steve Stolder. Steve says, how do you remember it? He's talking about the breakup. And Bob says... I remember leaving the group at the end of January. I remember telling Grant and bassist Greg Norton that I quit the band because I had had enough of the way things were going. What ultimately prompted you to leave the group? Bob, you know, Husker Du was a great, great band. I think maybe we should have packed it in a little sooner. I was enjoying it as much as I could, but I think having known those guys for 10 years, we sort of had to deal with each other every day for 10 years. And after a while, you sort of get to know somebody so well that maybe you don't like the environment that you have to be in with them. It's not particularly that I disliked Grant or I disliked Greg or any of their habits or lifestyles. It's just that after a while you go, this isn't making me happy. And I could sort of tell that everybody else was miserable because of it. You've really got to have the guts to stand up and say, this is enough. Just pack it in. I don't think it's any one particular thing. I don't think it was Grant's problems, which apparently he's documented very fully. I don't think it was any dissatisfaction with Greg's interest or lack of interest in the band. I don't think it had anything to do with me being a dictator and an asshole. It had to do with 10 years is enough. Mm. So here's 
Greg Norton from a 2019 interview with the band Porcupine uh, by Brad Cohen on a blog called Rock and Roll Globe, talking about what he did after the, the breakup of the band. Right after Husker broke up, I had a band called Gray Area with Colin Mansfield on guitar and Joe Jones on drums. We started working on a record, but never made it to a final mix. We did a handful of shows with Firehose and did a Midwestern tour, but broke up in 1990. About that same time, I was making my transition to working in the back of the house in restaurants. I had been waiting tables and moved to the kitchen. That started my journey towards becoming a chef and owning my own place. 1990 to 2004, I was so busy working in kitchens, I hadn't picked up my bass at all. I even got rid of my bass amp in that time. Now, I couldn't find anything about Joe Jones, but Colin Mansfield had a history with, with Husker Du. He played in a Minneapolis band called Fine Art who released an album locally in 1978. It's cool, noisy art rock. There's two guitarists, Colin is one of them. Not sure if it's him or the other guy on the recordings, but the guitar playing is pretty wild. Colin also started Twin City Imports in 1980 and started importing records in the basement of Northern Lights Records, uh, where he and Greg worked together. He recorded Husker Du. The recordings became known as the Northern Lights Demos recorded at that store by Colin, some of which came out on the Savage Young Do box set, and he also produced the Blackberry Way sessions, where the tracks on the Statue single came from, with additional material also coming out on Savage Young Do. Looks like Grey Area maybe spent the first few years kind of woodshedding. Uh, at least according to Paul Hilkoff's Husker Do database, their first show wasn't until April 14th, 1990, at, mm. at First Ave with Arc Welder and Zuzu's Pedals opening up. Whew, Arc Welder. Yeah. So good. So here's a piece on on Grant, Post Hooskers from Spin Magazine, February 1989 by Tom Roblowski. And we're going to hear from Tom at several points during this episode. He wrote a lot about, about Grant's solo career. In the year since Husker Du dissolved amid a flurry of internal squabbles and rumored drug abuse, the blame for the band's demise has fallen squarely on the shoulders of songwriter-drummer Grant Hart. I can see why, Hart says, having recently released the EP 2541, the first post-Husker effort of anyone in the band. Because I quit the band. That's what Grant says. Husker was scheduled to play a benefit concert in Manhattan the day after they broke up, but Hart went anyway. And by the time I got to New York, he says, here's all these accusations that I'd been fired because of my heroin addiction. Technically, Ryan, at least according to Bob, they hadn't officially broken up yet by this point. Because this was this New York show was one of the the shows that, that they canceled, or Bob canceled in, in late December. This It was a show for uh, AIDS benefit in New York. So according to Bob, they didn't officially split up until that meeting in January at Grant's parents house. right yeah in the documentary grant very much points to december of 87 yeah as the breakup interesting to mention that 2541 was the first release in the documentary grant points to this one the yanonamos yep 12 inch on new alliance as the the first release of a post husker du band member yeah i think technically that's right yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, so this article goes on. Hart's longtime flirtation with heroin had become an addiction by the release of Husker's Candy Apple Grey in 1986. 
The whole thing with drugs, he qualified, was kind of a symptom of what the disease was that was going on in my life, as far as how much control of it I had in the first place, and I wasn't able to quit smack until I had quit Husker Du. To tell Hart here it, creative differences had been dividing the group long before their December 87 split, and he takes exception to having been subsequently labeled unreliable. You know, if unreliable meant not showing up at the office, not writing songs, not playing extremely well, then no, I was not unreliable. If unreliable meant having dissatisfaction with the way the label wanted to push us in the commercial goals of Bob Mould and his outfitting of Greg Norton as an equal third member as far as songwriting was concerned, then yes, I guess I was unreliable because I couldn't be dependent on to assist with other people's goals. Hmm. In, uh, in the documentary... Grant uh, says in his first year of, quote, liberation from the band, he had developed quite the reputation as both a sinner and a saint hmm. in, uh, in the sense that, you know, there was a lot of talk about him being the reason for the breakup of the band. But then also he was, you know, responsible for so much of the band's great music. Yeah. Uh, here the article goes on. Having co-founded Husker Du with bassist Norton, Hart says that a dictum determined by mold prohibiting Hart from ever writing more than 50% of the material on any release was a pretty weird thing to have decreed to me. And I lived with that for the release of Warehouse, which is why it's like 45% me, 55% Bob. Differences in songwriting philosophy emerged after Husker jumped from indie label SST Records to Warner Brothers in 1985, and Hart found himself unable to get behind Mold's new songs. It was like they sounded, I hate to say it, they were square, and in some sense it might have broadened us with the REM crowd or whatever crowd as far as when you're on a major getting that appeal, but it did nothing for me. And then it says, as he works on a full-length album for SST, Hart attempts to put the whole existence of Husker Du completely in retrospect. That's a quote. I think Greg's probably incurred less frustration doing what makes him happy than doing what Bob and I need to do. It's kind of in a state right now where Bob and I might be trying to show each other up here for a few years. It's kind of in a state right now where Bob and I might be trying to show each other up here for a few years. No matter what kind of bitter monster it turned into, there were some very satisfying moments. I can't think of anything else I would have been better doing off for that amount of time. Uh, so, as mentioned in this article, SST 219, which we'll be getting to here in about a month, actually came out first in October of 1988. Yes. Uh, Bob's workbook album was May of 89, and Intolerance was released on December 12th, 1989, so almost two years to the day after Husker Du's last show. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so I guess... Interesting when you consider how prolific they were with Husker Du. You know, they cranked out Zen Arcade, New Day Rising, and Flip Your Wig in like 14 months or something like that. Yeah. So there's a cool interview with Grant from Bucketful of Brains that came out in December of 89, right as Intolerance had just come out. He talks about the EP being worked on kind of at the same time as the album, but SST was, quote, having some real difficulties and we couldn't finish the album. He says the basic tracks for the full length were finished in June of 88, but sat unfinished for a year. I can only assume, Ryan, the difficulties he's alluding to are the troubles with Negative Land and U2 and the, uh, a huge financial strain that it put on SST. Yeah, it's interesting, too, in the, in the documentary, Grant is asked, you know, 
why did you stay with SST? Mm-hmm. And and this is this is coming on after Grant is talking about how you just you just mentioned that rapid pace of releasing albums for SST, and then as you know from our prior discussions on Husker Du, there was such an issue with them not being able to have their product out on the road. You know, they were selling out, they weren't pressing enough. And Grant says they instigated the problem with SST in the sense that they said, SST, don't pay us anything, just keep the checks and put it into producing more records. We need records out there on the shelves. We need them on the road. So Grant is kind of blaming himself for the problem with SST, you know, not paying bands. And then when the the interviewer says, why did you stay on SST for the intolerance record? And he says, well, at the time, SST had only not been paying us for two years. <laughs> and so, you know, he, he kind of gave them the benefit of the doubt. But it's interesting when he's talking about we instigated the problem with SST. We said, keep the checks, keep our records in stock. And in the documentary, he says, and they're still in stock 30 years later. <laughs> 30 years later, the records are still in stock, of course, insinuating that they've never received any checks. Right. I, w- I was wondering that myself, why why he would have stayed with SST. It couldn't have been from a lack of other options. I mean, he's one of the two main songwriters in Husker Du. Like, I'm, cer- I'm certain there were labels, other labels interested in, in a solo album from Grand Heart. Um, and... and I could have this wrong, but I was thinking to myself, you know, if I'm remembering the story right, when Flip Your Wig was was ready to go, it, Grant wanted to take that one to Warner Brothers already, and it was Bob who wanted to keep it with SST. Mm, yeah. I could be wrong about that. But don't yeah, quote th- me on that one, Ryan. I won't, but they were definitely on the verge of a major at the Flip Your Wig time frame, 100%. Yeah. Okay, now if you look at the dates on Paul's site, Grant was playing solo shows at the entry as early as 82-83. By March of 88, he's playing shows at First Ave and Uptown Bar, billed as The Swallows. Now, by contrast, Bob didn't do another show until March of 89. Uh, So this Swallows, you know, it's a short-lived group. By 1989, he was billing his band as Nova Mob, uh, and he released an EP in a full-length under that name by 1991. Mm-hmm. So Paul hipped me to, Paul Hillcoff hit me to the Swallows. It's basically Minneapolis band Toadstool with Grant on guitar and vocals. Toadstool had a 7-inch on Twin Tone in 1989 and a full-length called The Sun Highway, also on Twin Tone in 1990. And then that was it. It's pretty great indie rock. Would have fit really well on SST or maybe Homestead also. Bit of a Dom and Dino feel. Not quite yep. as heavily heavy, but similar. Some of it sounds like pretty raw garage rock, like the track Suck Rag off of the full <laughs> length, which they shot a video for, and you can you can see that on YouTube. Uh, there's a song on this full length called Burnt Offering that's just so, so killer. Mm-hmm. So bassist vocalist John Paul Joyce played in the excellent twin tone band The Magnolias prior to Toadstool. Oh, dude. I, I'm so glad you went to the Magnolias. Yeah. More people need to know about them. For sure. And Ryan, afterwards, after Told Stool, he played in Cockroach Park era, Run Westy Run in the mid-90s. You, you betcha. So incestuous, the Minneapolis scene, and there's so many players that were on each other's records or bands other than Husker Du and The Replacements. Yeah. 
Okay, so Toadstool was Brad White on guitar and vocals, John mm-hmm. Joyce on bass and vocals, and David Gullickson on drums. So here I, I hit up John Joyce about the Swallows era, and here's what I got. He says, I grew up in the same neighborhood as Grant in St. Paul. He was an inspiration for us in my neighborhood. I first played music with him when I was about 15. We always played music together. Grant was sick of playing with Husker Du, and about a year before Husker broke up, we were playing together all the time in the Rossmore building where he lived in downtown St. Paul. This, uh, I'm assuming, is the building where they, like, where he also had his, his studio, where they did, like, Dookie Town. Oh. You know? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> uh, he goes on, John Joyce goes on. He was playing drums with to- Toadstool all the time because he and Brad and I were always hanging out. Because we were between drummers, we played with him a lot. We had some amazing jams, but he didn't want to be a drummer anymore, especially in a power trio like Toadstool. He was gravitating toward guitar and fronting a band. He had a lot of new songs and was ready to start playing guitar and singing them on stage. We wanted him to continue playing drums with us, but he said he had already said all the things he wanted to on drums. So he sang and played guitar while Toadstool with David Gullickson on drums, backed him up, and we called it The Swallows. We played a bunch of gigs at the entry and the uptown bar as The Swallows, and Grant also played drums with Toadstool for a bunch of gigs. We had booked because David Gullickson, our drummer, had a day job and couldn't get away for gigs sometimes. Those were good days musically. Grant was always one of my favorite drummers. He could play lead drums, and you would just go with his flow when playing with Grant. It was always really fun playing with him because he had a great feel and style and was a great player. Mm-hmm. So I asked John what material they were playing during this era. He said, at Swallow shows, we played his songs from Intolerance and Last Days of Pompeii. That's the first Nova Mob album. Nova Mob, yeah. We also played Signed DC, a suicide from the s- song from the 60s, which we'll be hearing uh, later on down the line on a Grant release. Uh, we also played House of the Rising Sun and some Toadstool songs. We didn't play any Husker Du songs. At Toadstool gigs, we played all our own material with Grant on drums. Grant knew our songs from being at all our shows and jam sessions, and also from co-producing the Toadstool record with Dave Perner for Twin Tone. He says, The Swallows never recorded, just played over the winter, possibly for close to a year. 10 to 20 shows between Swallows and the Toadstools line up with Grant on drums. So there you go. Thanks, John, for clearing some of that stuff up. Yeah. Yeah, here's some stuff from Andrew Earle's book on Husker Du. After the band's early 1988 demise, Grant Hart was recording new music and playing out live within six months, making the move from drums to guitar, though he provided drums on the 12-inch single released in 1988 by New Alliance band the Yanomamos. And I mentioned that a moment ago here. Yeah, I, um, I listened to that this week. Um New Alliance Records 37. Yeah. It's it's, it's not great. No, it's all total <laughs> avant-garde improv smashing around. This one, though, comes alive. Yeah. This one is a much more coherent Yano Mamos record. This is on uh, MVD from 2017, the same year that Grant unfortunately passed away. Yeah, you've so, mentioned that one before, but I've never heard it. Yeah, well, yeah. it's, you know, don't give up on Yanomamos, but you're right that that original one is not the greatest. Interesting, though, to note that, again, that's the first release 
by any Husker after the band broke up. And it's it was recorded at Creation Studios, basically with all of Grant's gear set up during the recording of Intolerance. This mm-hmm. era, it was it was basically um, at least how Grant describes it in the in the documentary. You know, he just invited uh, the players over, and I should actually mention who those are: Miss Jane Mansfield and Tim Petrowski. Um, he mentioned. You know, hey, I've got my stuff set up. Come over, and that's where that uh, new Alliance 12-inch comes from, which is a challenging listen. You're you're right. Yeah. Um, continuing on, though, in Andrew Earle's book, Bob made a quick and permanent exit from Minneapolis, returning only when the city popped up on a tour itinerary. Norton was forced to keep a low profile in order to deal with the breakup's financial impact on his life. Hart's debut full-length as a solo artist was released on SST in early 89. This That's what it says here anyways, although I believe Intolerance was released on December 12th, uh, 1989, as you said. So not early 89, late 89. Intolerance was performed and recorded by Hart alone and has never been deservedly acknowledged for beating the first major home recording trend, i.e. lo-fi, by four or five years. It's also a fine pop record that definitely silenced an unknown percentage of heart naysayers. Marshall Crenshaw and Robert Forster of the Go-Betweens both would cover the title track in coming years. Yeah, by the title track, he means 2541, I think. Is essentially, yeah. yeah. Not not like the song Intolerance. Yeah. That's, that's not what he's getting at. I had such a weird experience this week in listening to this record and knowing how Hart was, you know, really struggling with substance addiction and whatnot as like a post huge band solo album and definitely dealing with some demons. It really reminded me of the early John Frusciante uh, solo albums after he left the Chili Peppers. Oh yeah, because it because there's some kind of lo-fi stuff going on there and home recording stuff. It really, really had a weird connection in my head. Uh, makes me want to go back and listen to, like, to record Water for for ten days or or any of those early uh, record collection releases. Even have you ever listened to that um, that Frusciante record? Shadows collide with people. Maybe. Oh. It's it's excellent. It's actually like one of mine and my wife's favorite like road trip records. Hmm. You should check that out. Hey Ryan, those two covers that you you mentioned, I I checked those out. Robert Forster covering twenty five forty one on his uh, nineteen ninety four album "If I Had a New York Girlfriend" on Beggar's Banquet. Right, that's pretty cool. Uh, the Marshall Crenshaw version on "Miracle of Science" Razor and Tie nineteen ninety six also reissued in twenty twenty. That's really cool. Both of those are really great versions of that song. And then Ryan, just by coincidence, most recently I checked out the new Mark Stewart record of the pop group. He has a brand new album called Verses. Yeah. And he covers on there the song All of My Senses. No way. And KK Null of Zenny Geva is, is on it. And do you know who's on bass? What? Yeah. Oh, no way. Yeah. Excellent. On the tree. The pop group are on the tree now. They're on the tree now. Oh, that's so cool. Here, Ryan, is from the 
uh, SST press kit, the front page for this record. As drummer, vocalist, and songwriter in Husker Du, Grant Hart infused emotional depth into their trademark wall of thrash, Following the turbulent demise of his of this groundbreaking group in December 1987, Grant was first to emerge from the Hooskers' ashes with his release of last year's three-song EP, 2541 SST 219. Intolerance is Grant's latest offering of evocative songs sure to stir a wide realm of reactions. And also, Ryan, we'll get to this when we get to episode 219, but I have the the front page of the press release for for that um, All of My Senses 12-inch, and it says, for further information and icicles, contact Ronster Coleman at SST, and then there's a phone number, and Ronster is spelled R-O-N-S-S-T-E-R. <laughs> Ronster. Nice, the Ron Master. Yeah. Here's, um, here's from Trouser Press about this era with uh, Grant Hart. Popular perceptions of Husker Du's implosion cast Bob Mould as the wounded victim and Grant Hart, drummer, singer, songwriter, as the problem child. Although Mould vented the depths of his delusion and anger on 1989's workbook, Hart got in the first word on the plucky title track of a 1988 three-song 12-inch, that's 2541, painting the split in terms of a couple's first apartment the number of which just happened to coincide with the band's office studio address. And we'll get more into 2541 in a few episodes as well. A moving description of Hart's pain, as well as an assertion of his survival, intolerance, a simply played one-man band solo project that avoids familiarity by using 60s-style organ as the most prominent rhythm instrument, deals with more than one traumatic aspect of his life. Here, Ryan uh, is from the press kit again, from some, uh, I guess, a magazine or something called Traffic, November 1989, again by Tom Robleski. It's quite a long piece, so I just picked some of it out. I, I like how it starts here. He goes, uh, two years after a stormy breakup, the insults still fly between Hart and former partner Bob Mould. Is there life after Husker Du? He says, Grant Hart's pickup truck is a real piece of work, a gray disheveled hulk littered with old shirts, some blankets, and a stray set of bongos. A self-painted Batman logo adorns the hood. <laughs> Made me think of Chuck Dukowski's Spider-Man van. Yeah, yeah. Um, he says, a diagonal red slash going through the Batman logo as in response to the Batmania of last summer. Must have been when the Michael Keaton Batman movie came out. Yes. Yeah, the Tim Burton movie. Yep. Flames have been crudely spray-painted along the front quarter panels as if on a drag racer. By Hart's tally, the truck has been set on fire at least twice, once by himself at a local art show where he also immolated some, some of his paintings, and again by someone's jealous boyfriend. And it wasn't even me they were after, Hart says, as we get on the highway toward downtown Minneapolis. It was one of the guys in my band. And they just said, hey, let's go burn Grant's truck. <laughs> uh, here's later in the article. He's talking about um, the suicide of David Savoy, um, Mold being on tour for workbook. He says, though their battles lack the bitter mistrust of Lennon and McCartney's best spats or the pissy bickering that marked Mick and Keith's recent quarrel, 
Hart and Mold remain stubborn in their beliefs over the band's demise. Mold insists that Hart's heroin addiction had long undermined the group, while Hart, who freely owns up to a past problem with heroin, begs to differ. During the last year of the band, Bob was touting Greg as an equal songwriter, which was far from a realistic attitude. He wrote like one song. Meanwhile, me and Bob had written fucking 40. Without sounding too opinionated, Bob used Greg to kind of put a harness on me. It's always been easier to just let Bob have his way than to deal with him. And you don't complain to Bob Mould. When we recorded the In a Freeland EP, Bob was such a bastard at that time. Literally the meanest person that I have ever met. You know the silent psychic intimidation routine where somebody just fumes for like four days? Bob can fume like nobody I know. He's intimidating you without saying a word. Bob and I are both taking credit for being the first one to leave the band, Hart said. Giving him the benefit of the doubt, I don't know if he heard me when, he, when I said, I quit. Later on, he says, during my visit, this is the, this is Tom uh, Robleski. During my visit, Hart found himself at the same pair Ubu concert as Mold and Norton, but neither approached him. I've got better things to do than hang out with those fuckers, Hart said when I met up with him later. And earlier in the summer, Hart had to keep his distance at Mold's first Av show. I was just going to go in and say hi. But there was a problem with me getting into the dressing room. I knew that came from him. So then he goes to watch Nova, Nova Mob rehearse at their practice space. He says, the band is an odd lot. If Hart, as he jokes, is the demented artist, then guitarist Kevin Lavelli, with his curly hair, somewhat subdued manner, and wire-thin frame, is most quintessentially the rock star, called Snake by the rest of the band. He had the good fortune to study guitar in shop class in school. Bassist Tom Merkel would be the Wyman-esque quiet one. The band's unofficial chauffeur, he drives the Nova Mobile, Merkel is the only meat eater in the group. Pleasant and somewhat shy, as well as a wicked bass player, I don't think I heard Merkley say more than five words in succession the whole time I was out there. Drummer Tommy Ray might be the pretty one in another band, but with the mob, he's now the goner, having quit in early autumn. John Peterson, another local musician, has taken over his spot. The band goes through an hour-long stint, spewing out some of the intolerance numbers, including one of Hart's current favorites, the boozy sing-along, The Main. That's real waltzy, Hart said of the song. I ended up doing like 10 tracks of background vocals on the record and mixing them down, them down to one it, until it sounded like a beer hall song or something. The new album will also include All of My Senses, a drum machine and synthesizer track that Hart calls probably as synthetic as anything I'll ever do. He talks about some of the other tracks here on, on an Intolerance that they were playing at this jam session. He says, after covering some choice Husker cuts, Heaven Hill, Green Eyes, Never Talking to You Again, the mob works out some of the material from Hart's as yet unrecorded opera, The Last Days of Pompeii. And then here at the end, he says, he's talking about the set Nova Mob's going to play. He goes, there'll be an encore set of songs from Intolerance. The band has been gigging around Minneapolis a bit, but major tour plans remain amorphous. SST Records has pushed the album's release date back for a third time, now scheduling it for November 17th. So 
I don't know, it just goes to show you the kind of blur of that timeline when he was playing with the Swallows, recording this record, forming Nova Mob. Mm-hmm. There was a there was a lot going on. Yeah, post pretty busy. Post so this album doesn't have much in the way of liner notes. It does it doesn't have recording dates. Sounds like there were probably several spread out over the the course of more than a year. Yeah, it doesn't say where it was recorded, but the Tom Ro- Robleski piece says it was done at Creation Audio, which you already mentioned. Yep, that's the studio formerly known as Nicolette Studios, where Husker mm-hmm. Du recorded Candy Apple Gray and Warehouse, I believe. Yep. Uh, it was engineered in tolerance by Tom Herbers, who worked with a lot of Minneapolis bands, Blue Hippos, Soul Asylum, Magnolias, Jayhawks, a Chris Mars solo album, many, many more. A couple of Chris Mars solo albums. I was I was noting that when looking it up is like, so Tom Herbers has a real reputation for working with, you know, <laughs> former Minneapolis punk rock band drummer solo albums. There you go. <laughs> Um, also engineered by John Chopper Black, another Minnesota engineer, worked on all kinds of records, ranging again from Soul Asylum, Loverboy, Paula Abdul. Lots of major label stuff. Yep. He did a 12-inch EP with Jesse the Body Ventura. Wow. There you go. Not sure how it all shook out as far as who recorded what and when, as the recordings were so spread out. But it's looking, Ryan, like we might have Tom Herbers on for the 2541 episode, so maybe he can shed some light on this. That'd be awesome. This came out on CD, LP, and cassette on SST, and according to Paul's site, on Rough Trade in the UK, although it's not on Discogs. Yeah, it was re-released as well, too, by MVD Audio, remastered and put on 180 gram vinyl in 20, I think 2010. Yeah, somewhere around there. With different cover art. Let's uh, get into these tracks, Ryan. History Lesson, Part 2. Hey, before we do that, in the absence of any Spaceman spiel about this record, I've got a spiel from Gimme Indie Rock, Andrew Earle's other book. Okay. Okay? So, Andrew puts this as one of the 500 essential American underground rock albums. And here's what he says about Intolerance. The solo debut full-length from former Husker Du drummer Grant Hart, Intolerance, was released by SST in late 89 and was preceded by the related 2541 EP on SST, which was released in October 88, making Hart the first ex-Husker to turn out solo material. Intolerance was unfairly overshadowed by, and constantly in critical competition with, Bob Mould's solo debut workbook which appeared eight months before this album. But Hart's record draws from a much wider stylistic frame of reference and is generally a better listen. That's a, that's a controversial statement, I would <laughs> say. Uh, this song cycle of post-collegiate balladry, pop songs, synth pop, folk rock, and piano balladry is all over the place. But when it lands on beauties like The Main, a piano and vocal torch song of sorts, and the astonishingly catchy and heartfelt centerpiece, 2541, a different version from the earlier EPs, named after the address where Husker Du practiced and recorded, Mr. Hart proves that he is a timeless songwriter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you see it for years, I'm sure, they were compared to each other. Yeah. 
Oh, anytime Grant and Bob released something, all the rock journalists were talking about the other guy. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so these tracks, Ryan, it starts with all of my senses. Uh, the album starts out with kind of a, a TIE fighter. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> some sort of noise. Yeah. There's definitely some found sounds or you know just stuff lying around making sounds out of it in the studio sounds on this record yeah whatever that is it's some sort of you know tape manipulation or whatever maybe a keyboard Mm -hmm. Uh, drum machine on this one hand claps Mm -hmm. uh, some synthetic sounding tambourine pretty sure that's with the drum machine it all kind of all those kinds of elements kind of just trickle in the layered keyboards. One's kind of playing a bass line, one doing some more atmospheric stuff, one doing that main door style Hammond sounding melody. Very 60s sounding, like a lot of this record is. Grant's vocals, he's putting some rasp kind of in his vocals, which is not something you hear him do on Husker Du albums. No. It has a 60s vibe, but also an 80s vibe, I would say too. Um, interesting about the lyrics too, in the documentary, Grant says, you know, that lyric that comes up over and over in the song, I'm using Mm -hmm. all of my senses. He's, he says, that's basically just him getting it out there that like, he's an addict. I'm, I'm using pretty transparent. And, and he's, he says something along the lines in the documentary of like, oh, how candid I was in that song by saying I'm using. Yeah. The song itself is just a, to- a just a total hook fest. Very laid back psychedelic vibe. Vibe. So ca- so catchy. Yeah, I like how at the end there's some clapping as the music fades out, and that's when you hear a guitar lick mm-hmm. during the fade out. <laughs> yeah. No, no other guitars in the song anywhere that I could hear. Considering this is the obvious single, in my opinion, it's no wonder they they edited it down from the five minute forty four second version on this record to three and a half minutes for SST 262 Mm. on the All of My Senses EP. Right. It's also the version, that one, that they used for the video, which it's a cool video, Grant walking around a frozen lake in the winter, wearing a trench coat, lots of close-ups of him singing. Looks Looks like he's wearing a Husker Du logo earring, which is totally wicked if that's what it is. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm wondering if that lake he's walking around isn't Hidden Beach, the the New Day Rising. New Day Rising picture? Yeah, mm. might be. Couldn't find any info on who shot that video. I wouldn't be surprised, though, if it was Grant who kind of edited it. Maybe you're, you know, himself, because he was pretty hands-on with artwork and promo. Mm-hmm. Okay, track two is Now That You Know Me. We got some gospel organ. Mm-hmm. And Grant's doing what on this song, Ryan? I believe, Brant, he's honking on the bobo. Yeah, he's pretty good at it, too. Not bad, yeah. yeah. In the Bucketful of Brains interview from December 89 he did with John Story, Grant says this song is the only song on the album that was ever played live by Husker Du. It wasn't a bad version, but I like mine better. So many times with Husker Du, the subtlety was lost. It was like... Mm. It was like cracking an egg with a sledgehammer sometimes. Yeah, that's not wrong. Yep. Uh, and then track three is Fanfare in D major, and then in parentheses, Come Come. This song, in a much more stripped-down version and just called Come Come, is on the 2541 EP also. 
This, to me, is the most Husker Du sounding track on the LP. Yeah, maybe. Starts with some dramatic tom rolls, almost like a timpani. It's probably the big guitars that come in that make me think of the Huskers. That panning viola, or whatever it is, uh, that pans right and left, it gives it a cool psychedelic vel- velvets feel, the song. Yeah, that was what I wrote down. The v- Whether it's viola or violin, I don't know, but that just the uh, the very constant repetitive strumming of the bow on the string it gives it a real psychedelic almost hypnotic vibe too and i do think once you get to the end of the song it transitions from toms to actual timpanis at the end i think okay uh in this review by tom robleski he says grant's ability to fuse catchy hooks and simple sounding lyrics with tumultuous arrangements shine through on fanfare in D major, which could fit comfortably on Quadrophenia. So then we go on to the track, The Main. So this is an interesting song. They go it into it a bit in that Bucket Full of Brains interview. John Story says, it has a sea shanty feel. And Grant says, that was another one augmented by background vocals. The instrumentation on that is just a little barroom piano and drone organ Afterwards, the organ seems to suggest pipes, and the sing-along chorus is very atmospheric. John says, So the main is to do with the sea, as in the Spanish main? Grant, it's more or less a drug song. Yeah, It's more or less a drug song. John, I thought it was, or perhaps a double entendre. Grant, yes, it's a triple entendre, actually. It's a sea shanty where during the Spanish-American War, there was the battle cry, remember the Maine. The Maine was blown up in Havana Harbor, which precipitated the war. And then it's having to do with the circulatory system. Yeah, yeah. for sure, right? That's It's a total drug, yep. drug, drug addict song. Yeah. Uh, John, does the ship, the Maine, have any significance to you, Grant? No, it was just lyrically suggestive. Like, the first line of the song is, well, it sinks to the bottom, or floats to the top. I avoided. I avoided policemen when I went to cop. Uh, pretty cool the way he did the gang vocals in the chorus to make it sound like a, a bunch of drunks belting it out in a bar. And, and I like this part at the end of the song. It's kind of this big dramatic payoff where he takes like the pause that he's doing between each each stanza out. He says um, here again with with the drug references. I was smack in the middle of Alphabet Town. There was life on the corners and death all around. You know hell is the worst place that I've ever been to. The hell that I went through when I stuck it into the main. So there's the the circulatory system reference. This song, every time I heard it this week, made me think of the Pogues. In particular, the song A Pair of Brown Eyes. Mm -hmm. Yep. It has a, maybe a Celtic kind of vibe to it yeah and the the gang vocals sound very much like you know very pogues-esque a bunch of you know inebriated folks singing the big refrain yeah he kind of hints in the bucket full of brains interview that he maybe had some assistance with the backing vocals Hmm. i know on the 2541 ep there's some some credits for some backing vocals so Hmm. maybe the same people and there's a live version of this song on the All of My Senses EP that we'll be getting to. Yeah. Well, maybe it was, uh, you know, Jane and 
Jane and Tim from uh, Yanomamos. I'm pretty sure Tim, for sure. Yeah, they yeah. were in the studio at the same time. Yep. Okay, flipping it over, 2541. Uh, this version is written out. The words are written out. Uh, in On the EP, it's written as numbers. This one's a more rocked up version than the EP one. He talks extensively about this track in the in that February 89 spin piece I mentioned. So you hear about this kind of mostly talked about in relation to a Husker Du practice space mm-hmm. or office space. Here's what it says in that in that spin article. A relationship song from 1985 that Husker Du decided against recording takes its title from an address Hart shared with an ex-lover. 2541 is also a street address in Minneapolis where Husker du once had office space, a fact Hart realized only after recording the track. Oh, interesting. There's a dual poignancy with that. I wrote the song while I was waiting for that for the truck to move me out of this apartment where me and this person had just split up. And there were so many parallels with the dissolvement of Husker's office and us being a band. Most, you know, most of the reviews I read say the EP version is superior to this one. Mm, well, we shall see about that. Yeah. That's about as deep as I want to go into the, to this track. Me too. Uh, Cause we're going to, we're going to do it again right away here. Mm-hmm. Track two, side two is roller rink in that bucket full of brains article. John says all of my senses. The song is very reminiscent vocally of Eric Burden. Grant says, oh, really? I thought Roller Rink on side two sounded more like the animals. Hmm. It could be all the keyboards, is what he says. Uh, Tom Robleski from a review in the press kit says, with its phone off the hook ending, it's a lilting, quirky instrumental. With that kind of evocative title, Ryan, Roller Rink and the keyboards and a the strong 60s feel, I couldn't help but think of Shadowy Men. Oh. Like You Spin Me Round or Running Meredith or one of those kinds of songs where they use keys. That's so funny, man, because I think next week I'm going to do a shadowy spiel. Nice. I'm serious. Good to hear. Okay, track three, You're the Victim. So in this article from 1989, Grant calls this a somber little number, which mm. the critics will no doubt opine is about mold. I've heard that already. It's about a lot of people. And, you know, like here's a lyric. You've got these arrows that you shoot at me. They leave these little wounds, but you are the victim. This one's got a whistle solo, very Axl Rose. (laughs) Only for you, man. Only for you. (laughs) There's, you know, a dentist drill or a power saw in this one. Not sure which. Some metal clanking. A cheap toy xylophone, maybe, sounds like. A squeaky toy at some point. His voice is breaking in this track too. I noticed on like the last tracks on side B, there's a lot more, not not just like um, gruffness or snarl in the vocals, but actually the vocals breaking. Yeah. Might be the register he's singing in maybe. I mean, Grant sings high. Yeah. Literally. <laughs> <laughs> I guess so, hey. Yeah. Okay, uh, track four, Anything. Uh this one's cool. It doesn't really stand out or anything, but it, it's kind of a cool melancholy song to start winding down the record. That thing he does where he goes down to the kick drum only and kind of just pounds out a steady beat, like something most drummers would do on a floor tom, is kind of a Grant Hart signature thing for me. He does it a lot, and I, and I just love it. He does it on this song too. 
yeah. fades out with the lyrical refrain from Little Richard's The Girl Can't Help It, which just made me think of the swinging neck breakers all week whenever oh. I heard it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there's some insane lyrics in that song too, hey? I made me remember that track too. If she winks an eye, the bread slice turns to toast. <laughs> Whoa. Uh, I did like this track though for... I'm pretty sure it's the bass at this point. I could be wrong. Maybe it's just lower register guitar, but a bit of a phaser on it. I was getting some really serious and cool Joy Division vibes on that sound. I was digging it. Yeah, you don't pick out a lot of bass on this record. I think a lot of the bass is probably done on the keyboards. On the organ, for yeah. sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it might be just lower, like, E-string guitar with the phaser that makes it sound kind of like high register bass with that effect. I don't know. Okay, the next one is She Can See the Angels Coming. Uh, here's from that traffic article again. Just chord, organ, and vocals. Not entirely true. There are some cymbal washes in this. Mm -hmm. It's chillingly bare, just grief on a record. It's, it's, you know, a nice way to end the record. It's about Dave Savoy, hey? Is it? Yeah, it's a, a song about Dave Savoy and, and the suicide and Grant's paying tribute there. Okay. Uh, and then it's not actually the end of the record because we've just got this minute and a half mishmash called Reprise. You know, sounds like some some firecrackers maybe. Mm -hmm. Almost like at a street fair perhaps or a party. It recalls some of that phaser bass lower guitar from the song Anything though. That comes back. That's the, the Reprise. Mm. Okay. I didn't pick that up. Mm. The album ends with some you know, with a runoff groove, skipping type sound makes you maybe think there's going to be a locked groove or something. Yeah. Here's a review from the press kit real quick, Ryan. With this strong effort, Grant Hart finally emerges from the wreckage of Husker du to stand as a singer songwriter in his own right. The record should come as a re revelation to those who thought that the seminal punk trio was Bob Mould's band. The chilling keyboard strains of all of my senses and perfect pop of now that you know me show that Hart's powerful, though limited, contributions to the Husker canon, like Turn on the News and books about UFOs, were no flukes. Hart wrote and played everything on Intolerance, and for a one-man band, he crams an amazing array of instruments into the ten songs, racks of organ and keyboard, guitars, timpani, tambourine, not to mention layer upon layer of vocals. A strong tour could wipe Mold's workbook gains of this year off the map, but if not, Husker fans will be gratified to see that Hart could carry an album all by himself. The cover art, Ryan, I mean, the whole package is pretty bare bones, except for the cover art. It, it doesn't credit fake name graphics anywhere on here, which is Grant's, you know, nom de plume when he's doing his, his artwork. But I can't imagine that it, it would have been anyone other than him that did this. Oh, it's for sure him um, and not... Not only is it obviously him, but it's also collage artwork, which he was well known for. So it's for sure him. And then if you look at the words that are cut out and that are picked, it's very hard not to think that, you know, Grant was being quite intentional on some of them. You know, not only are there, you know, little it, it's it looks like, you know, like a um, like a ransom note with letters and words chopped out of a magazine, but it's just random all over on the cover. There's the word, you know, chopper. 
Yep. There, there's SSP in the bottom right that obviously looks like SST. There's Minneapolis. There's uh, the word, I think, that, yeah, there's gay pride. There's the word injection. There's bare feet. You know, there's so many references to Grant Hart, Husker Du, this album, the people involved in the album on the cover. Yeah. And does yours have the uh, the bumper sticker that came with it? No. Yours I've does. got it. I've got it on the outer sleeve here. It's just big and green. It says Grant Hart Intolerance on it. Hmm. Yeah, photo on the back of Grant with kind of a mustache. Very close up, and there's someone in the in the background as well too, holding something that's kind of shining. There's another arm there. Grant Hart, a selfie pioneer. Well, lo-fi home recording and selfie pioneer, Grant Hart. Yeah. That's it though. There's nothing else in the packaging. No dead wax. No dead wax. Yeah. I guess we're off to the ballot result. Ballot result. So what do we do here, Ryan? You know, we've got all of my senses in 2541. We can't pick those. Yeah. Like, can we, I don't think we can pick those as part of this episode. Can we? Uh, Well, they're the two best songs on this record, in my opinion. Yeah. But let's. I think we saved those. SST for once picked the two best songs to to use as promo. <laughs> I should have looked and and uh, made note of which uh, tracks made it onto the storehead or no the Godhead store dude play device. Yeah, um, I'm sure it's twenty five forty one and and all of my senses. Yeah, well, my other three faves were the main. Now that you know me and fanfare in D major. Oh, no way. Yeah. Yeah, I'd probably go with Fanfare. I think that that's pretty awesome, that right. track. And I mean, I would have put in 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 my picks, I actually would have put anything because I really like the sound and the vibe on that track. Hmm. What do you want to do? Let's do Fanfare. Okay. Yeah, because I, I like this version better too. Yeah. All right. Ryan, thanks to uh, John Joyce for giving me some some info on the swallows thanks to paul hilkoff for the press kit and his awesome website what's next week next week brant we're going to a landmark record with sst 216 the dinosaur junior bug lp and we've got a special guest yeah one of the engineers paul coldry is on the show nice Hey everyone, thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at MoJackPod. We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is MoJackPod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content. If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.